Good morning. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and find that. We are in the book of Exodus chapter 1. And while you are looking for that, let me just bring you up to speed in case you weren't here last week or just as a refresher as we dive into this incredibly important book. Last week, we discovered that we are going to learn about the second book in the Pentateuch. Pen means five, and Tuk means book, and so the way that we should look at the book of Exodus is it's actually the second chapter of a five-chapter book. And that's important because if we view it that way, then we're going to be thinking about everything that we learned in the book of Genesis, namely what we discovered in Genesis chapter 3 in which Everything in this world began to crack and to break down because of the hardness of our hearts, because of the sin nature that we all have. We corrupt the world that God has made good, and ever since then, he has made a promise that he will redeem all things, that he will fulfill his covenant promise in due time. And so as we're looking at this path that is being brought before us, we need to view the promises of God. And we need to be thinking about the promises of God. And last week, we also looked at a few of the major themes of this book. I want to identify four of them for you for us to be thinking about them, especially as we look at Exodus chapter 1. So number one is this. God is working behind the scenes to bring about his glory and our good. He's always working behind the scenes to bring about his glory and our good in fulfilling the promises that he has made. And right on the heels of that, number two, we can put our hope and our trust in God because he's trustworthy. One of the images that I think about is an Olympic rower. Have you ever noticed that every single time they're in a race, their backs are toward the finish line? And their eyes are fixed toward the start. And I think of what the Apostle Paul says. Let us fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, namely Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we can be confident of our future is by looking at the faithfulness of the promises of God in the past. And once we see that God is faithful, then it will give us the confidence we need even in our darkest days. And we're going to see that this morning. Number three, we are being challenged by God to draw near to him and not to draw near toward the blessings that he has given us. Remember that Hebrew word Goshen last week. That's the land where the people of Israel lived. But Goshen means to draw near. The question is, draw near to what? Are they drawing near to God? Or are they drawing near to his blessings? And in the same way, that's the question that God lays before us. Are we drawing near to him or are we drawing near to his stuff? The definition that I've given you of idolatry is when you take a good thing, you make it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a broken and tainted thing. And so in the same way, that's the question that God lays out before us. Every time you enjoy a good meal, you enjoy a good bourbon, you enjoy family and friends, you go camping, you enjoy creation, all of these good things that God has made are meant to be a gateway into seeing God for who he truly is. He is faithful, he is good, he is true. And we can see that through his creation. But time and time again, because of our sinful nature, we draw near to the created things and not to the creator. And so this book is going to challenge us to draw near to him. And then most significantly, number four, God will deliver us through our bondage through a substitute. 
that's the most important of all the themes in this book, is that God will deliver us from our bondage through a substitute. Not ourselves, but another who will lay down their life so that we can be set free. And my prayer for you as we move forward is that we would not only hear the word of God, we would not only know the word of God, but that we would be transformed in such a way that we would be compelled to live according to what it says. See, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they believe that there are four different ways that we can learn, hear, know, or understand something. So let me just lay this at your feet for a second. You can just hear something, right? But you, you cannot understand. So, for instance, I could say to you, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Elachad. And unless you've studied Hebrew before, how could you possibly know that I just recited for you Deuteronomy chapter 6? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. So you can hear something but not understand. Or you could hear something and understand but not be moved. I mean, how many times has someone opened up Scripture, looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and thought to themselves, oh, that's an interesting topic, written by someone long, long ago in an antiquated book about a false god. How does that have any relevance toward my life? I mean, it's not as though all I need to do today is put Deuteronomy chapter 6 on Facebook and all of them will come to know Jesus. And so you can hear something and understand it but not be moved by it. And then finally, you could hear something, you can understand it, and you can be moved by it, but not be compelled to follow it. Not be transformed in such a way that it changes your life. Right? So you could, you could come up to a pastor and say, my goodness, thank you for that message. What an incredible message. And still remain unchanged. The message I have in my mind is like if um, you had Google Maps open, and you're driving along, and Google Maps says, make a U-turn. And you think to yourself, amazing, mesmerizing, captivating, and you just keep going in the wrong direction. It doesn't change your behavior. It doesn't cause you to make a U-turn. And so in the same way, my, my prayer for you, the thing that I've been praying for as we move forward in this series, is that you would not just hear it, you wouldn't just understand it, you wouldn't just be captivated by it, but it would transform you in such a way that you would be compelled to live by it. That we as the church would be known as people who love the word of God. Who ferociously read the word of God. That when we're cut by others, we bleed the word of God. And when we enter into our darkest days, we might mine the word of God for its familiar truths so that we can be comforted even in the midst of the unsettledness of our hearts and the world around us. That regardless of what may come, we might be so compelled by what Scripture says that we're like that Olympic rower. We don't know what the future holds, but our backs are toward the future. Our front is toward our past. As we see the faithfulness of God, we can be confident that he will be faithful in the future. That's, that's what I want to just lay before you because... What we're looking at this morning is an incredibly difficult chapter of Scripture. And so let me lay the foundation for you. This is the principle of what we're going to be looking at for the remainder of our time. I put it this way in your note sheet. God has a plan. His plan is good, and he can be trusted. God has a plan. His plan is good, and he can be 
trusted. And I want to impress this upon your heart this morning because if we're not careful, we're going to develop expectations of God that are out of line with how he sees fit to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the concern that I, that I have for all of us and for Christians in North America today is sometimes we develop expectations of God on the basis of something God never said, and here is the sad reality. We then begin to lose trust in a trustworthy God on the basis of something he never said. And so we need to, to know and understand what he says and how he's going to work out his salvation in the world and that we can remain fervent in those darkest days. I remember uh, a commercial this was probably 10 years ago when this came out, but there's a woman and she's sitting down, she's got her orange juice, she's opening up the mail, and then on the mail it says, your heart attack arrives today. With that kind of all too familiar reminder that life hits us when we least expect it. Isn't that true? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's laid out in our future. And one thing I can promise you right now, in, in a room of this size, some of you are just coming out of a very dark valley. Some of you are in a very dark valley right now. And others of you, within the next six months to a year, will be in a dark valley. That's just the way life is. And so how do we remain rooted in the midst of those dark days and Exodus chapter 1 helps guide us and give us the principles necessary to do that. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 8. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. That's what we looked at last week. The, the Pharaoh has forgotten his salvation. How do you forget Joseph? This new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. Circle, highlight, underline. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now I want to point out to you that this is a horrific passage for the people of Israel. You can't sanitize this passage. You can't dehumanize this passage. You can't treat it as some sort of Bible story with flannel graph, you know, some fictional fable or tale. No, this is genocide 101. Something that has happened, literally happened, in human history, and more than once, mind you. This is the formula for how genocide works in the world. I think verse 13 sums it up pretty well. The Egyptians used the Israelites 
ruthlessly. And if there was ever a time for God to intervene, now is the time. You know, by the time Egyptian soldiers are coming into Hebrew towns like Goshen, ripping infant children away from their mother's arms and throwing them into the Nile River, they are probably thinking to themselves, where is this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob I've heard so much about? See, once upon a time, God spoke and there was. Remember that? Genesis chapter 1. Once upon a time, God revealed himself to Abraham in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Once upon a time, God revealed himself to Sarah by the oaks of Mam and declared, you will have a son, even though she was over 90 years old. Once upon a time, God revealed himself to Jacob and he had incredible visions and dreams and he even got to fight with God. And once upon a a time, God revealed himself to Joseph through dreams, gave him incredible insight and wisdom. But all of that was a long time ago. For the last 400 years, God is nowhere to be seen. And all the people of Israel are asking themselves, where is God now? How can you be so absent in the midst of this tragedy? Where are you? What are you up to? What are you doing? And why won't you speak? Why won't you do something? And I think we can resonate with that. I think... There's many people in this room to whom those questions are alive and well in your heart and in your mind today. And so this is a very real story in which Egyptians used the Israelites ruthlessly. And yet in all of this, what what if I said to you that this chapter is the greatest story of salvation, the greatest story of deliverance, and the greatest story of ceaseless care that we find in Scripture. What if I told you that in this story we can see perfectly the care and the love and the providence of the God that we serve? It might be hard to see that right now, but I want to help you have the eyes to see that even in the midst of this darkness, God is in this. God is in this story. Now let me show you. Look at verse 8 if your Bibles are open with me. It says this, uh, depending on if you have the ESV or the NIV, it'll say one of these two things. It'll either say, behold the people of Israel, or behold the Israelites. Now either way, that word for people is the word am. Say am. That is the Hebrew word for nation. Now why is that important? For those of you who were here last week, you should remember Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, in which God said to Abraham, Behold, you will be a great what? Oh, interesting. A great nation. And here's what I find so interesting about this story. It has yet to be told that the people of Israel were a nation. Because, as you might recall last week, only 70 people came to Egypt. They weren't a nation. They were just a large family. And yet, Bible trivia for you, how many men, just men, left Egypt by the time the exodus occurred and they went into the wilderness? How many men? 
600,000. And so if there's the same number of women and a little bit more children, you know that's at least 2 million people, perhaps 3 million people, who leave Egypt even though they started off at 70. And here's what I love about this story. Here's Pharaoh, and he wants to wipe out the people group of Israel, and yet he is the very first person in human history to declare that Israel is a nation. He's the first one. He's the one who says it. And I just think that is so, so cool. And so the covenant is moving forward even here. So here's the first point that I put in your note sheet. God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's plan cannot be thwarted. We see it right here and it continues. Look with me at the actions of Pharaoh. I want to go through the story twice. First, just looking at the actions of Pharaoh. And then a second time, I want you to see what God is doing behind the scenes. Because once again, I think the story of our lives is sometimes we look straight out the window as we're driving. It's full of bugs. But when you look through the rearview mirror, you see the faithfulness of God. And so I want you to have the confidence to see when God is faithful in your past, he will be faithful in your future. Even though it might seem like all hell is breaking loose in your life. And the same thing is happening here. So let's look at this from the eyes of Pharaoh. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the nation of Israel has become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. So here's how the genocide project works. It all starts with political shrewdness. He knows that you can't just right away start off with genocide and murdering babies. Because these two nations have been mingling together and been friends for the last 400 years. Certainly there's warm relationships between the two of them. Certainly there's beer buddies who get together over the weekend and watch the hockey game. Certainly there are those who, are, who break bread together. And so how can Pharaoh convince the entire nation of Egypt that they're a problem? Well, here's how he does it. He says, they're out to get you. Look at all these immigrants coming into our country. They're a problem. They're taking all your jobs. They're mooching the system. They're a threat to our national security. Watch out. Watch out. They're coming for your kids. They're a problem. And before you know it, the opinions of the Egyptians toward the Israelites begins to change. We hear in these few verses three times that the nation of Egypt feared the Israelites. Feared the nation of Israel. They were afraid of what they could do. And it all starts with political shrewdness. And then, number two, it moves toward this dehumanization which leads to slavery. That's verse 11. He says this, they're becoming too numerous for us. They're becoming too powerful. They might rise against us. They're out to get you. They're out to get your kids. Quick, let's act before they do, and let's enter them into slavery. And then, and only then, can he move toward what I'm just going to call clandestine murder. He can't outright murder them yet. So he goes toward two women, and, and he says this. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, The king of Egypt said to two Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. 
but if it is a girl, let her live. So what's the goal? Well, if slavery won't end the population crisis, let's discreetly, clandestinely, get rid of the boys. I mean, life mortality back then was not very high anyway. Mistakes happen, and just do it really quietly, and quickly we can get rid of the boys. Why the boys and not the girls? Well, because girls are viewed a little bit lower than cattle at that time. Cattle were sacred. Women were not. Their uh, testimony was not valid in a court of law. They couldn't own property, because how can property own property? And so they are no real threat to the empire of Egypt. And we are going to get to the irony of that in just a little bit. So Pharaoh says, if I kill the male infants, then the female Israelites will be turned into wives or slaves or concubines. And very quickly, within one generation, the nation of Israel will be no more. That's the goal. That's the objective. And then finally, after all these steps, Pharaoh can just come out with it. The plan that he had all along, but it took perhaps a generation for him to get to that place, and he gives a decree to all the Egyptians. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, not just to the officers, to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Like, this is really hard for us to think about, but imagine living in a nation in which another ethnic group than you could come up to you, rip your child, your infant child, out of your hands and, and throw him or her in the Fraser River. And you, you have no, re, no, there's no repercussions for that. There's nothing that you can do about it. There's no safety in, in the court of law. In fact, if you fight against it, do you know what's going to happen? Then they're just going to come after your other kids. They're going to come after your spouse, your extended family. And so there's nothing that you can do about this terrible, terrible atrocity. And that's the life that they're living in. And again, like I said to you, I, I know this is hard, but just imagine if, if that's the life that you are living in, and the question that you keep asking God is, where are you? How... How can I say that you are sovereign over all things, and yet that's, that's my daily experience? How can that be? And yet, as I promised a little bit earlier, that's, this is still the story of God's deliverance and power in our lives. So I want to look at the story one more time, but this time I want you to see it with the eye toward what God is doing in the unseen realm, so that once again we can have the confidence in our life, even in our darkest days, that God is still at work. God is still at work. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. If you are taking notes, I just want to encourage you to put in the margins Genesis chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 28. The same verbs are used in both of these places. Genesis 2, God's uh, commitment to Adam and to Eve is to go into all the land, to subdue it, to cultivate it, to fill the earth. And then also Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, when Jesus tells us to go out to all the earth and to proclaim the good news of salvation to all, so that all may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we see it right here, even in the midst of their oppression and their slavery, that God is still at work. Things are still moving forward. 
And I think that is incredibly, incredibly important. So Pharaoh's enslavement and persecution of the children of Israel for the purpose of wiping them off the earth actually leads to greater cultural identity and a greater dependence on God. A greater dependence on God. An all too familiar reminder that the best place for a Christian is on their knees. That's a great place to be when we are dependent upon God. And that is not to say there were no little boys who were thrown into the Nile. That is not to say that none of the Israelites had scars from the whips of their slave masters on their backs. That is not to say that the Israelites were treated ruthlessly. All of those things were happening. And yet we see that even though sin has come into the world and broken everything that God has made good, God is still bringing about his redemption plan. God is still at work in this. It is to point out that God's plan cannot be thwarted no matter what any human being tries to do. And that reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How do you be more than a conqueror? Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No matter what you face, no matter what you encounter, God is faithful. So we've already seen that God has a plan and that his plan is good. Here's the second thing that I want to lay out before you. Rarely does God's plan work out in the timing or the way that we expect. Nevertheless, God's love for us never ceases. See, this is why this chapter, I believe, is so important for us to understand the heart of God. Because we have two, two dual realities at play in this. Number one, the world is bent on wreaking havoc on itself. And every human heart is filled with sin and we are destroying one another. And at exactly the same time, we see that God's redemptive plan is at work, and nothing, no, nothing can change that. That if God has a plan, it is as good as done. It is as good as done. And you know, of, of all the major world religions, I think Christianity is the worst propaganda. I mean, think about it. Think of all the stories in Scripture in which all of our heroes are making a big mess of themselves. Is it not David who cries out to God and says, God, where are you? Why are you leaving me? And when will you return to me? When, like, for how long will you stay away? Forever? And is it not Jeremiah who says, God, you tricked me? Is it not Sarah, who upon receiving the promise of God, she mocks God and laughs? Is it not Thomas, who upon hearing that Jesus has been resurrected from the grave, says, I will not believe it until I can put my hands in his hands and his feet and in his side? Is it not John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus and says, are you actually the Messiah, or should I expect someone else? See, every single page of this book is stories of who we might refer to as heroes 
who are wetting the bed and who are thinking to themselves, I'm a doubter. It's like the whole Bible is filled with a dump truck of doubters. And yet God says, print it. Print it. It makes good Bible because let me tell you, there's going to come a day in 2022, there's going to be a church called Gateway, and they're going to be banging their head on all the same stuff. Print it. It makes good Bible. So let that be an encouragement to you to know that even in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our frustrations, in the midst of our agony, God says, lean in, don't lean back. I have this picture in my mind of a, a toddler, a three, four, five-year-old girl who's just pounding on the chest of her daddy, and he takes it because he loves her. And he says, there's something here you don't fully understand. There's something here that because I am infinite and all-knowing and sovereign and in full control, and you are a created being, there's no possible way that you could understand all the things that I am doing in this, but put your trust in me. I am faithful. I've proven myself to be faithful. Trust in me, even in your darkest days. And once again, God wants to impress that upon your heart. And so if you are in a place where you are saying, God, I don't know where you are. I don't know why you would let something like this happen in my life. Then just know that the Bible is filled with doubts, filled with questions, and God always enters into that space with you. We have to be a place gateway where people can say, I am struggling with God. And then we can just lean in with them and we can struggle with them. We can say, I, I don't know what to say, but we can mourn together. We can lean on one another. We can live out the one another commands of Scripture as God calls us to do. And so as a collective human race, we can ask God, where are you? I can't see you. And God whispers, I'm here. I never left you. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. See, when God seems most hidden, he's not. When God seems absent, he's not. When God seems far off, he's not. He's always been there. For, for the people of Israel, those 400 years in which they never experienced anything that they would consider to be miraculous, like the, the audible voice of God, he's there. And even in their darkest days, when their infant sons are being thrown into the Nile, he's there. He's still there, walking with them. And so here's what I want you to see. The third point, God reveals his glory by using the weak and the powerless to accomplish his purposes. If you have your Bible, look at verse 15 again. I want you to see this incredible story of Shifra and Pua. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God, circle, highlight, underline, and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became 
even more numerous. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. I love this. I think this is so important for us to look at, to recognize that women, like I said, they're viewed one step down from cattle. Cattle are considered to be more sacred than them in Egypt. And yet, God uses them to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. In fact, think about this for a second. God uses five women to bring about his redemptive plan in Egypt. Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom, Moses' sister, and none other than Pharaoh's daughter herself. That's pretty cool. God says, I'm going to use what culture thinks to be the weak and the powerless, and I'm going to use them to bring about my redemptive purposes in the world. And that's just the way that God works. I mean, otherwise, why did God choose an elderly couple to bring about his covenant promises, one at the age of 100 and the other at the age of 90? Why does he do that? Or in a culture where the first son gets everything, why did God always choose the second son? It's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. And in an age where um, physical beauty and the ability to bear children was the prized possession of women— why, why does God always use the elderly woman, the barren woman, the unlovely or unloved woman? We see that it's Sarah and not Hagar. It's Leah and not Rachel. And God does exactly the same thing here. What do we see in this story? Pharaoh, who is the most powerful person in the known world across human history, he's nameless. Did you notice that? And by the way, we still don't know definitively who was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, during this time. And yet, who, do you know who we do know? Shifra and Pua, servants of slaves, slaves of slaves. Their names go down in history. And those who are big, God makes small. And those who are small, God makes big. And so let that be an encouragement to the rest of us. If, if you think, I'm too young, young people, I'm too young, or, or I'm too small, or I'm too insignificant, or I don't have influence. Let me tell you something. God loves to flex his spiritual muscles to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. God loves—thank you for that amen, baby, back there. God loves to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. Let that be an encouragement to us in the lives that we live as well. Here's the fourth one. Our actions reveal who or what we fear most. Who or what we admire most. Who or what we ascribe worship to. Who or what we are in awe of. And that's a, a major theme of this book. And again, I, I love the midwives here, right? They get summoned by Pharaoh. Judgment day has arrived. They know that this could be their final day on earth because he has given them a command— they defy the command of Pharaoh. Why? Because they fear God. So he says, why have you done this terrible thing? Why have you not murdered all of the Hebrew baby boys? I just, like, I love their response. They go, well, Hebrews, they're not like Egyptian women, all frail and dainty. Like Hebrew women, they're strong like bull. And they're out in the field, right? And they're working hard all the time. And then finally they're like, oh, I think my water broke. I need to have a baby. Ah! And the baby's out, right? And they hide it away somewhere. And then they're just like back to work. 
It was just going for it. There's an image you won't forget. And yet, here's the great thing. We know the real reason, don't we? What's the real reason why they defy Pharaoh? Because they fear God. Because they fear God. Because they're in awe of God. Because they trust God. Because they worship God. Let that be said of, of us too. In everything that we do, we recognize that the only way to live is according to what God says. What he says rings true in my life. And I just love in this story that they defy Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful person on earth, because they fear God and they worship him. So here's how I want to close this morning. Let me ask you, does Exodus chapter 1 remind you of anything? A story where a great king, so powerful that he can make a public decree, murder baby boys. He does so, and infant children are taken from their mother's arms and killed. But there's one boy who survives miraculously, and that boy becomes the great deliverer for the people of God. Is that not exactly the same story of Jesus in the Gospels? And so I want to help you have the eyes to see that this story that we're reading this morning in Exodus chapter 1 is once again just a subplot to a grander story that we're all wrapped up in as Christians. That God is doing the same thing today through us. Yes, Moses was the great liberator, but it was a liberation of one people group at one time. And by the way, I shared this with you last week. Spoiler alert, they finally make it to the promised land. They rebel against God, back out into the wilderness. Genesis chapter 3 all over again. It was just a physical deliverance. And the true deliverer comes along. His name is Jesus. And through his death, we are all made free. We are all set free. So much so that the author of Hebrews can say this. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The answer, a whole lot. Right? What can a man do to you? They can take your life. They can enslave you. They can mistreat you. They can take away your children. They can take away your property. They can dehumanize you in every single way. That's a whole lot. And yet what we see in this story, the real question that the author of Hebrews is asking is in the scope of eternity, in the scope of my salvation, what can man do to me? I love the way that the apostle Paul treats this. He says, what can you do to me? Kill me? To die is gain. What can you do to me? Keep me alive? To live as Christ, what can you do to me? Put me in prison, I'm going to convert all your guards. What can you do to me? In the same way, that's, that's the incredible confidence that I want you to have as the people of God. Every day you walk out your door to have such incredible confidence, knowing that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You have a firm foundation. You cannot be moved. And so I want to lay that before you. And even in those hard days, those days of darkness that we have all faced or that we will invariably face, just know this. There was a story in which 
a son of God, went to a cross, even though he was perfect in every way, and he stretched out his arms, and there he stayed, even though he could bring down a legion of angels to save him at any time. And once he was crucified on that cross, it says that the Father turned his face away, and what did Jesus say? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in those moments where you feel like God is nowhere to be found, just know Jesus has felt that too. But he trusted his father. And the way the story ends is as terrible and atrocious and evil that the cross was. It was a great eucatastrophe. That God used that cross to bring about his redemptive plan in the world. And is it possible, dear Christian, that even in the dark days that you face, that God is in it? That God is still doing great work. God has a plan. His plan is good. And he can be trusted.